I mean, the Obama people would come to me and say, your community comes to these meetings, you write fat checks, and then you have nothing to ask. You're not asking for anything. You're not asking for anything. You're asking for a photo op. And so that was, that was like, <laughs> therein lies the problem, is we mistake the photo op for the influence. That's not influence. From Toledo Society, I'm Mohammed Zad, and you're listening to The Transit Lounge, where we track the journeys of people who've had a considerable impact on the Muslim world. Today on the show, Dalia Mugahed, Director of Research at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding and former advisor to the Obama administration. Okay, so imagine a hypothetical situation. You're an orphan taken into a foster home. Some of your new siblings you get along with and others not so much. And some absolutely hate you. You struggle to get a seat at the dinner table on many occasions and you're shafted on family holidays every now and then. So you've got three choices. Option one, you stay in your room and lock the door. You retreat, in which case nothing really improves. Option two, you leave the home to find a new one, which isn't really an option for you in this case. And option three, you get out of your room and you fight the good fight. You strengthen your relationships with the siblings that you get along with, you befriend those who are indifferent, and you try to neutralize those who hate you. So you fight the good fight for about 15 years, only to realize that you're not getting much traction. Those who hate you still despise you, despite all of your efforts. And some of your allies, well, you're not so sure anymore. At that point, what do you do? In this interview, we hear from Dalia Mugahed, who's been on the front lines of Muslim social activism for at least the past decade. And in this discussion, we get to one profound realization, that in Muslim social activism, the journey is absolutely more important than the destination itself. Whether there's an end in sight or not matters less. Dahlia came to the US when she was five, when her parents came from Egypt to pursue graduate studies. I asked about her upbringing because her and her siblings are fairly successful by any measure. So I started off with a simple one. What was the secret sauce in this particular Egyptian American household that she was raised in? I mean, my parents were fairly, you know, ordinary Egyptian parents. I, I don't think they were all that unique in the way they parented. I would not write a parenting book based on what they were doing, okay? <laughs> so they did a lot of things great and a lot of things I wouldn't repeat. But I think what they really did well is they were just great examples of a be, being morally upright. I mean, that's what they really did well. It was impossible for them to see someone that needed help that they wouldn't help. Did and they so, push you to study further? Did they, you know, really emphasize the Muslim identity? Was, was there anything that... They didn't do any of that. Okay, interesting. They didn't do any of that. They definitely taught us we were Muslim and they provided the framework with, within which we filled our Muslim identity and more importantly, our Muslim spirituality. So what we, what we got from our parents was the example of moral uprightness that was very important as I look back. It was just so taken for granted that they always did what was right, even when it was inconvenient, expensive, difficult, unpopular. It was just how they lived their lives. They were just very, very upright people. And that's what we saw. And so I think as I formulate how I became 
how I form my own Muslim identity. Sure. It was it was not something that was handed to me. It was not it was not a language my parents spoke. For me, my journey was more through the social justice lens. So when I was 15 years old, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, which was like a huge turning point. It was mm-hmm. sort of awoke a certain kind of political and social consciousness rooted in Islam and, um, and, and a realization and an awakening that there was such thing called an American Muslim identity and that Islam ha- played a part in the freedom struggle in America, sure. that it was, um, it, was a, it was an American religion. Um, and so this idea of, I wasn't just a Muslim in America, I was an American Muslim. And that happened when I read Malcolm X. And, and it was after that that I started to really study and go to the sources of my faith with, with questions of social justice, which I, I hadn't before. It was sort of, here's my do's and don'ts and why I can't, you know, have sleepovers. That was what Islam was in my mind, because that's what it was from my house. It was just like, no, we can't do that, you know, because you're Muslim, you can't do this, you can't do that. So that was my faith. And then over here was all of my passion around social justice, and they had nothing to do with each other. They were just completely separate. And then by reading Malcolm X, I'm like, this is one thing. And and they integrated, and it became became a unified struggle, a unified struggle. movement in my mind. You've had a very successful educational journey. Um, you mm-hmm. were a chemical engineer from the University of Wisconsin. You've got your MBA uh, from the University of Pittsburgh. But did, like, what did you see yourself doing after 10 or 15 years? Was it chemical engineering or did you know that you're going to be in the social justice scene longer term? I absolutely did not know that I was going to be in the social <laughs> justice scene long term. I thought it was what I was doing in college um, and that I would graduate and become a, you know, a responsible Egyptian um, <laughs> wife and mother, which is what I initially did. And I started my corporate job after I graduated as a chemical engineer, uh, got married, had my first son, child. And I was living the normal Egyptian-American dream. And then, um, and then 9-11 happened. And that was really my turning point where I went back to that social justice activism. Did you find the responsibility or was it the pressures that you faced that, that, that forced you into that space? It was really both. Um, it was at first, it first started as um, fear and anger and a feeling like everything was changing around me uh, and that my faith was being so sharply demonized and that if I didn't do something that that I was like in danger. My child was in danger mm. in the country that was his, you know. And by that uh, point, it's not like you can go back to Egypt or your. There's nowhere your, to go. Right? There was yeah. nowhere to go. This was my this was my country, and it was definitely the country of my child. And I needed to do something to make it safe for him and safe for my family. And so, I uh, that was my call to action. It was a call to action around um, just necessity. It was a critical need. And uh, so I started doing outreach work where I was as uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, I started just going and talking to like high school classrooms, mm. college classrooms, and and that work just kept growing and growing. And I was on local media, and then I was training law enforcement, and that's, cool. uh, that's what happened. I that's and did you find any I... resistance from like your family or any of the circles that you were involved in from from work? There was not resistance except for just the normal resistance of you're never home or, you know, this is taking up too much time. So that was the main thing. But, like, at that time, I definitely felt like I had to do everything. And, and I was really pulled in so many different directions. And it's, it was very stressful. Absolutely. Uh, but I realize now 
you know, this is sort of philosophical understanding that I have now that I am not necessary. I, I mean, at that time, I felt so critical to the movement. Like, I had to be doing this or it wasn't going to mm. get done. I am under no such delusion anymore. I don't feel this kind of... Uh, so what keeps you going in that sense then? What keeps me going is that I see the work as what I'm called to do by God. And that's very different than feeling necessary for the work. The work is necessary for me, but I am not necessary for the work. I need the work. The work doesn't need me. And so because of that, because I know that, I can, I can do it within reason do and you, not let it burn me up. And, and do you feel like there is an end in sight or are you doing this purely for your, for your uh, internal, I guess, drive? I, I don't think there's going to be an end in sight until, uh, as long as I'm breathing and, and of sound mind, um, I'll, be, I'll continue to do this work because it is, it is my calling and I need to be doing it. I mean, I, I see myself first and foremost as a servant of God. And so I have to keep serving until I die. And that's what I'm doing. Whether I'm not, or not there's an end in sight, whether or not there's a result. Exactly. Completely divorce myself of the result. The outcome is not in my hand. I'm not taking credit for the outcome. I won't take blame for the outcome. I'm just going to be responsible for my intentions and my actions. Am I doing, are my actions good? Can I defend my actions before my creator? That's the only question that I'm asking myself now. When I was younger, I was worried about the result, and that's why I was so stressful. It's gotten a lot better now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you had a very serious role at the, at the White House, and you were also asked to testify before the U.S. Senate Committee. So Muslims have been engaging for, in the U.S. For, for decades now. They've been advising, they've been consulting, they've been holding positions of influence. Um, my question is, where has that got us, you know? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not from right. America, but I watch American news, and and um, it looks like we're we're heading backwards. So, do we engage yeah. or do we disengage? Is there an alternative route to to fixing the situation? It's actually impossible to answer. Should we engage or not? The question I think needs to be: If our goal is to have influence, what is the best way to do that? In some cases, influence is best achieved through strategic engagement. And sometimes influence is best achieved through strategic boycott. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you need both. Mm -hmm. There are administrations, however, that are so far out of bounds <laughs> for normal, like, civilized humans that engaging just inherently compromises you, in my opinion. So the current administration is an example of that. But you don't engage, you don't have a seat in the table, right? You don't have a seat in the table, but, that, but I don't think that that seat necessarily brings you influence. I think that sometimes having seats on certain tables compromises you, uh, validates or, or, or legitimizes the table. If, if what we're doing at that table is something completely objectionable, being at that table without really having any influence just means you're legitimizing and, and and being co-opted. And the, the goal has to be influence. The, the problem I think we have, because we're sort of new at this, or some of us are new at this, specifically um, the immigrant community in America, is that we mistake access for influence. We mistake engagement for influence. Mm. We think if we're in the room breathing the same oxygen, mm -hmm. then we're having influence. No, we're not. If we have nothing in, we're not bringing anything to that table. If we're just sitting there, if we're not bringing organized money and organized mm. voter bases to that table, 
we're not having a lot of influence. Sure. So access and influence You're just are not legitima- the same thing. You're just legitimizing the strategy that, that's... We're just legitimizing yeah. the strategy that's there. And sometimes you still should show up at that table even if you have nothing to bring because sometimes, and I do this a lot, being in that room, the, you are at least making the bigots feel uncomfortable. And that can be a good enough, you know, sure. good right there. Just looking them right in the <laughs> eye when they're saying their racist <laughs> comments, making them sweat can be good for you, you know, just to do that. Yeah, fair enough. But to really have influence, and that's what I learned, you know, my one year advising um, at the White House, you need to bring leverage. You can't just be in the room and think you're having influence. That's not influence. And so with Obama, we had infinite access. We had all kinds of access. Did we actually have any influence or real influence with the Obama administration? Not really. Not not. Not in proportion to So if you had your access. time over, like, would you have spent more time kind of getting rallying, you know, the... The, the business people, the money, the yes. voters, the, is that... I would have spent more time organizing our, our community's assets and bringing them, you know, with an agenda. I mean, the Obama people would come to me and say, your community comes to these meetings, you write fat checks, and then you have nothing to ask. You're not asking for anything. You're not asking for anything. You're asking for a photo op. And so that was, that was <laughs> like, therein lies the problem, is we mistake the photo op for the influence. That's not influence. That's one business person getting a picture with Obama and maybe getting some kind of little business so favor. Whose, whose responsibility is it to, to organize that influence, to rally the troops? I mean, our civic leadership, our civic leadership should be doing that and they should be organizing the money. But the money is going in parallel with the civic. So the civic leadership is over here trying to get influence and lobbying with nothing to give or take. Yep. The money people are just doing their own thing over here, writing fat checks and getting pictures taken, and they're not working together. And so they need to work together so that we have, because the the civic leadership has agendas, but they don't have any leverage. And then the money people, the business people have leverage, but no agenda. They have to, we have to marry them together. Okay. um, So what would you say to a young hijabi who is continually ostracized, can't find a good job? Um, Like, how do they navigate the whole Muslim American thing? How do they maintain that sense of drive in this context? Well, you know, I would say the same thing I would, as I would say to anyone in that situation, whether they're a man or a woman not wearing hijab or whatever, anybody can be feeling this way, right? That things are tough, that things, the world is um, just too difficult. Hmm. You, you just have to go back to your spiritual base. There is just no shortcut to that. You have to do the inner work, and that is where you get your strength. That is where you get your resilience. Mm. And it's a daily thing. It's not a one-time thing. It's a daily practice of dipping into the spiritual resources of our faith. You know, the Prophet ﷺ had low points where he felt discouraged and he felt he was in a rut and he felt unsure of himself and unsure of his even his um, status with God. Sure. And the Quran speaks to those feelings, and we have to we have to go to that and excavate those tools to use them today. I mean, I, I was just giving a talk about Surah Al-Duha. the The idea of going to the Quran for hope, for strength, the idea of of establishing a practice of daily dhikr. These things maybe sound completely unrelated to, mm. like, what do you do in your daily life when you're feeling unsure? They're completely related. I would not be able to 
deal with life without these things. These things are so fundamental. They like are build so your important. Resilience is that what it is? That's where I get my resilience. That's where I get my re- and and life is not like life is not always easy f- for me at all. I've gone through really really difficult times, and it wasn't like this intellectual confidence that I got from like a book I read mm. at all. It was a completely a daily practice of dhikr. You know, I did need to do my night prayers. I did need to do qiyam. I did need to do dua. I need I needed to cry to God. You can't do it otherwise. There's no shortcut. There's no other way. There's no... If you don't mind me asking, what hmm. were those tough times? Is there one tough time that stood out for you? Well, you know, I, I can talk about my professional tough times. Then there's also personal ones. But the professional ones that were really tough is when, you know, when I was first appointed by President Obama, my influence was like really overblown, completely overblown and exaggerated. What in the community um, or in, in the, the community yeah. and in the and in the media? Yeah. So it was this weird like thing. It was like the first hijabi in the White House, and then Obama's Muslim advisor. Like I was literally at his right, you know, <laughs> right hand side, whispering in his ear. Completely crazy, right? And and the Arab media especially just took and ran with it and made it into this huge thing. And as much as I would try to like, I corrected this concept probably a hundred times, like on record, and it never went away. It just kept like getting repeated. So for the record, what was the position? I was a member of an advisory council, okay? So it was called the Faith-Based and Neighborhood. That doesn't sound so cool, you know? Right. (laughs) Not like Obama's Muslim advisor. Then that's much cooler. So so it went from a member of, of an advisory council to the president to being like his direct advisor. So um, the problem with that is the Islamophobic um, industry also hears the same thing. Hmm. And either, they're, either they really believe it or they just fabricate it and, and, and fuel that misconception because then it makes it easier to get people to be afraid and think that Muslims have all and this And why power. was that so difficult for you? Because they would harass me. And they would go after me. And there were smear campaigns about me online. They go after you when you're in, in any position of power or perceived power or influence in, when you're a Muslim in, in the public space. It's, it's a cost that they make sure you pay as a deterrent to others and to make you radioactive, to lessen your influence so and that government doesn't want to touch you. Did you get through it? I did get through it, but it was it was hell to pay. It was months of sometimes it would get worse and better, but there was a period where there where after I made a comment on a program where I said something like, "Well, I think Sharia is misunderstood." That is literally what I said, which I would say a thousand times again because it is misunderstood. So it was like Obama advisor defends Sharia. Sharia yeah. yeah, and it was like, and then they would just kept going, and you know. It kept perpetuating, and then, and then death threats, rape threats. I mean, these oh are God. serious things. And then people trying to call my—I worked at Gallup. They're trying to get me fired. People literally calling my CEO, trying to get me fired from my job. It was—I mean, these are like these aren't just like oh, ignore them. They're just on social media. No, this is real stuff. It's real. It has real consequences. So what got you through it? Was it the the prayers? Was it the PM? yes, yes? It was. That's all. That's what it was. It was not easy. It was. It was a a deeply um, trying experience that I had to really access my spiritual resources to get through. Hi guys, just a quick note on Toledo Society. The Transit Lounge is one podcast in a network of podcasts that make up Toledo Society. 
Visit us on ToledoSociety.com to find out more. Now back to the interview where we probe Dahlia on a couple of tough questions, but also find out about her incredible day job at the ISPU. So tell us what you do today at the Institute of uh, Social Policy and Understanding. What, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I direct research. And what that means is part of my job is to come up with research ideas. What are we going to research to push our mission forward? So our mission is to empower American Muslims to develop within their own community and then to also be able to fully contribute to society as a, as a whole. So what that translates into is to doing solution-seeking research that helps the Muslim American community build itself up. So it's about building strategies. It's about making uh, mosques more inclusive and more, um, more vibrant, more, more engaging, because mosques matter. Absolutely. And if they are and alienating, they matter to your life, right? They In, matter to my yeah. life. They matter to, to the life of Muslim Americans. And they matter to America. They're, they're good for society as a whole when they function properly. So when they're excluding women or young people or converts, that's bad for everyone. So we have one project about you know, reimagining Muslim spaces. Uh, we, we also research the Muslim family and youth. Muslim mental health. So all of those things are how to help Muslims develop. We're also looking at Islamophobia, all the different obstacles to full contribution and full equality. So we're looking at the American Muslim community holistically. And and so my job is to come up with ideas of research and then to direct those projects. And um, So what are the, the key things you've learned about uh, Muslim America in the last four years? <laughs> <laughs> so... I've learned the importance of the mosque. So mosques, frequent mosque attendance correlates to greater voter registration, more participation in volunteerism, more just more participation in, in civic engagement. It also correlates with better mental health outcomes. Mosques are good for society. And so part of that learning was to do a whole project on how to make them function better, how to make them more inclusive, more vibrant. So what is an ideal mosque in in your mind? An ideal mosque in my mind is one where everyone feels welcomed, where everyone feels that they belong to this community. And and I'm saying this from literally hundreds of interviews that we did and, and focus groups around the country, that that was the ideal mosque in people's minds, where they walked in and they felt like this is my tribe. I mean, in, in the best possible way. This is a place I belong. This is a place I feel values me and I feel safe here. And when, when that is accomplished, you people just really bloom. Volunteerism goes up. People um, create things. They set up their own programs. So it's, it's uh, board members are always like, well, what kind of programming should we do? And a lot of the response I would I'd give back to them is, just give people the space and then get out of their way. And, hmm. and, and you'll find people step up and want to be a part of something that they're co-creating with you. That's it. A couple of quick questions within four minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are two do's and two don'ts? <laughs> okay. So don't. I'll, I'll start with the, t- the don'ts. <laughs> don't let those who despise you define you. Hmm. Okay. That's one. Okay. The second, don't, don't read the comments. <laughs> just, just don't read what the comments. What about the good ones? 
There are no good ones. <laughs> just do, just skip it. You, your life will go, your life okay. will be longer. Your, your social, your, your emotional well-being will be of higher quality. Just don't read the comments. The do's is, um, do establish a daily practice of the okay. Actually do that. And do surround yourself with a nourishing social environment. You're the imam on the 27th <laughs> night in Mecca and you have one dua to make. What do you ask? I would really just ask for uh, Jannah for everyone there. That's it. If you didn't have to work, what would you be doing? I'd be doing the exact same thing. Cause I you did know, I've it heard when that <laughs> so many times. Yeah. I, I did it when I didn't have to work. I did it when I didn't get paid. So I'm just extremely lucky to get to get paid to do what I would be doing for free anyway. If you can live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Latin America. Why? Because it's beautiful. The people are nice. It's just interesting. Beautiful, and, and the people are warm, and life just has a nice pace. A book that you've learned the most from? I mean, other than the Quran, the obvious one, but... Um, was it the Malcolm X book growing it was, up? It was probably the one that really changed me the most, yeah. The autobiography of Malcolm X, yeah, by as told to Alex Haley. Two last questions. $100 product that's been of the most value? I think it, my Keurig uh, coffee maker, it's about $100, and I really I use it every single day. Okay. The Keurig, yeah. Did you bring it with you? I didn't. Oh, my it God. No, that would have been And an much. app that you would swear by? I use Google Maps every single Too easy. day. So easy, yeah. Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi guys, just one last note. The Transit Lounge is part of a podcast network called Toledo Society. If you're keen on finding out more or getting involved, we'd love to hear from you. Email the team via info at toledosociety.com.